0: Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs. Often uh, over the course of, what, 15 years or so that I've done this, often I get to interview the same entrepreneurs repeatedly. Um, joining me is someone who's been on several times, uh, Sahil Lavinia. He is the founder of Gumroad, a company that was incredibly promising on the verge of being a unicorn, then it wasn't, and then he got depressed. I, I, I don't know that I want to... Were you depressed?
1: Um. People would call me depressed. I don't know if I would use... Yeah, it's a heavy word. (laughs) But yeah.
0: Yeah, let's just say you suffered a setback there. It wasn't everything that you were expecting it to be. And so when the company wasn't a unicorn, uh, you took some time away from uh, the tech space. You started going to church. You started going to small CSS meetups and things like that. And meanwhile, Gumroad, this site that you created to make it easy for anybody to sell digital products quickly... Um, was growing and growing and growing. And when you came back into the tech scene, the thing was, I thought, an incredible success, even if it wasn't going to be the next unicorn. We've talked in a previous interview about how you ended up getting big pieces of the business back from investors who didn't think that the business was worth even holding on to. And as you talked about this transition from want to be unicorn to accepting not being a unicorn, you developed this following online of people who just gravitated to your worldview and wanted to hear more. And I think that's where this book came from. The book that we're going to talk about now is called The Minimalist Entrepreneur. You just released it. It's how great founders do more with less. And the reason, Sahil, that I wanted to have you back on here is. I kind of want to understand where you are today and how this fits in. I'm seeing you become a big investor by creating this community of people who follow you. They've invested money in you. You're investing money in <clears throat> entrepreneurs. I want to know: <laughs> Do you really like? Would you invest in a and what you call in this book a minimalist entrepreneur? Wouldn't you want something bigger? And uh, if you would, then then how does somebody become a minimalist entrepreneur? In fact, even if you wouldn't, let's talk about the ideas in the book and we can do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you need a website hosted, they'll do it inexpensively. Talk about really doing more with less. Little money, great. get a great website from HostGator. If you go to hostgator.com Mixergy and email marketing done right with all the marketing automation tools you want at a less expensive price, go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. But first,
1: Sahil, good to have you here. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> <laughs> what's the revenue at gumroad right now i think it's around 11 or 12 million annualized revenue this uh next couple of months will be will and be then, strong for us because just generally november december is when we see sort of the majority mm-hmm. of the growth every year come you know a lot of e-commerce businesses uh q4 is 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 pretty strong so i think we'll end up probably 13 or 14 million
0: got it and then what about profit
1: Profit is a good question. Um, I honestly don't track it super aggressively. Um, I know we are profitable. So I think we'll probably do something like maybe a million bucks or or so in profit uh, for the year, Um, which mostly means that I just wasn't able to hire (laughs) fast enough.
0: So I heard you on Clubhouse basically riff on where you thought your investment career could go in the near term. And it was something like, You said, I could basically, just by talking now, raise money and then also raise the profile of a company I invest in and as a result, both get an upside in the company but help deliver a bigger upside than I would otherwise. And truthfully, you could do that. Let's talk about what your investment strategy is. What is it right now?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the the sort of pithy one-liner is I want to earn interest on my interests. Uh, You know, I want to invest in the things that I use, that I want to use, the things that Gumroad might pay for, um, and just build sort of a portfolio of assets effectively. Um, One, you know, to sort of become more financially independent. um, And generally, the more money I make, the more money I plan to invest anyway, um, the more impact I can have. and and then also just to learn, I think I think investing in startups is is like a sort of a hack to just meet really really smart people, people who've sort of spent years and years developing some sort of thesis that they may have, and and then they kind of you know explain it to you in you know thirty minutes or so. And so I think in terms of just like you know I I, I when I when I was uh, when Gumroad was kind of down in the dumps for a little while, I was I was trying to figure out what career I could have that one I could do for basically ever until I died. And then two would basically allow me to read uh, a lot because uh, that's something I really enjoy doing. And I sort of at that point decided on science fiction and fantasy writing, uh, which I still do today. And hopefully now that this book is out, I can kind of refocus on that. But I think investing is another one. I think as an investor, you're kind of paid to basically, you know, be up to date on interesting things. And I think you do that. Yeah, by, you know, you get paid to learn, which is an amazing an amazing thing that you get to do, podcasting, I think, is similar in that way. Um, you get to meet amazing people. They get to kind of explain all the things that they've learned over the last several years. Uh, and then, you know, in, in the case of investing, you, you get to invest um, and and kind of participate in the upside as well. So. Mm.
0: I like the idea of interest on your interests. So you're saying if a company could help Gumroad and you believe enough in it, then why should you just be a user? Why not also be an investor? And obviously, if you're thinking about them for Gumroad, your business, then you've done the research, you're deep in the space, and you know what's right for your business and what has good upside. Give me an example of a company that's interest on your interests.
1: Yeah. So for example, one of the big problems that we had with Gumroad the last couple of years, and you know, one thing I, I do is I look at the P&L and. Look at our costs and see where are we spending money. What services are just not that high quality? Uh, and one of the one of the places we were spending a lot of money was QA, right? A lot of sort of, and, and this is something that like no startup really enjoys doing. Um, a lot of the QA folks are kind of treated as second class citizens in the engineering org, etc. And so I invested in a company called QA Wolf. I think I saw a tweet about it. Um, basically, their their thing was they wanted to automate uh, QA testing. Um, and, and, and the creation of these tests, make that super, super quick and visual. Uh, and they had this great GitHub repository that I thought was interesting. So I just DM them on Twitter, said, hey, would you ever consider raising money for this thing? Like, I think there's sort of a path to, if you want, you know, if you want to kind of double down on this, if you want a team, uh, you may not want that. Um, but if you do, like, I'd love to kind of talk. And so I invested in this company called qawolf.com, um, which has been doing super, super well recently. And it, you know, Gumroad was kind of a customer um, you know, as soon as we were able to, and I, I often look for that that sort of thing where I can. It also just makes my life super easy. One, as an as an investor, I don't actually have to do anything, right? Because and besides wire the money, because I was already taking a meeting. I was like 80, 90 percent of the investment.
0: You're already considering them for your business. Already trying to figure out would this make sense? Are they committed? Exactly, okay. exactly, exactly. And really, the only difference. I also is I get find to you get better better service. Sorry, there's a bit of a lag here today. I also find that you get better service if you're an investor instead of just another um, another customer. Yeah, I,
1: I think it cuts both ways, right? Like I think there's an expectation as well on my end that I am one of their better customers in the sense that I'm not just going to cancel, right? I'm going to say, hey, I'm canceling. These are the reasons I'm canceling or hey, this is getting really expensive. You might want to consider this um, or there's the, this bug or, or "Or there's this feature that we would really, really love. So I kind of act as like, I guess they're called design partners, um, where Gumroad is a sort of a trial customer, a beta customer, and then I just give them as much feedback as I possibly can to make their product better, which I would do anyway as, as, you know, as, as Gumroad CEO, but then as an investor, it kind of gives me an, an, an extra incentive to, to, to kind of do that.
0: Okay. And so if QA Wolf becomes a minimalist business, does it really pay off? I mean, I, I'll tell you that I haven't done a lot of investments, maybe about a dozen or so. Whenever there's someone who's just doing okay, they don't need you anymore. They're almost hiding from you the way somebody who owes you money hides from you because they know you're not going to see a big upside and they shouldn't really do much to get you a big upside, like sell the business. They're happy. They're doing their job. It's going to be maybe 30, 40 years and maybe and frankly, their kids later on are going to take over. If it's a minimalist entrepreneur, is it even worth your investment?
1: Um, Honestly, no. Yeah, most of the time, I would say that, you know, if you're running a minimalist business, like I think you've done something incredible, which is you built a business without raising capital from other people. And that's amazing. I think, you know, the sort of what I tell entrepreneurs and founders that I meet meet with uh, is one, you know, if you're considering raising venture capital, you should be really certain that that's something you want to do, because it's sort of a one way door, right? And I know this running Gumroad, it's very hard to kind of go backwards in that way. Uh, so make sure that you want to do it. And then, yeah, most businesses should not, frankly, right? Like I think 99.999% of businesses should not raise venture capital. They may raise some amount of capital, like their friends and family, or uh, they might, you know, self-fund the, fund the business for a while, or they might have a consulting business and, and use that. Um, or uh, they might raise money from their community now you have regulation crowdfunding and some of these other options that are making it a little bit easier to do that sort of thing. But yeah, I think most businesses should not be raising venture. But if you do believe your business is a really good fit for venture, then I would love to talk to you. But I think there's sort of the Derek Sivers calls this the two paths, where there's sort of the gate kept path, right? Which is maybe in publishing, like getting traditionally published or something like that, which has like an external party that has to kind of anoint you almost, right? And then there's like the other path, which is like the go viral on TikTok, write an amazing blog post, like sort of build an audience and then self publish. And I think, both of those paths are, are feasible uh, and you should actually, you know, I think frankly, kind of be exploring both, right? I think exploring the, the, the sort of bootstrap path is always going to make, if you do decide to raise venture, it's going to make you, you know, a much more powerful negotiator, right? You're going to have a lot more leverage walking into that conversation, which is kind of a core thesis of the book is it's not necessarily that you want to stay small, but that your operation, like you should always have high scale, right? Like you should always be doing more with less. That's the power of software, of the internet, of building an audience. Um, I can tweet and raise five million dollars for Gumroad. I think being able to do sort- these sorts of things, I hope, still apply to venture backed businesses, but certainly not as much, right? I think sometimes when you raise two hundred million dollars, you don't you don't care as much about freedom. You care about growing as fast as possible, and you actually you're not even optimized for scale. Sometimes you're you're optimized for like the absolute growth of the business.
0: Here's what I think happened. <clears throat> I think that you were approached to write this book, and you talk about it in the acknowledgements by Mary Sun, uh, who, by the way, is the only reason I was able to write my book. Stop asking questions because I would get on a call with her every week and go over my work, and she kept me, uh, she kept me going. I didn't realize this, but she read your blog post where you real where you said, "Look, my hopes of being a unicorn are dashed, and here's the future." She said you should write a book about this. My sense is that at that point. You were ready to write about your new path, which is more minimalist, and you also had clients at Gumroad who were also on a path of being minimalist entrepreneurs, and you were trying to give them a path and also encourage more people to be on Gumroad being these minimalist entrepreneurs. And this book is written for that path. The other side of you is the investor path, where you're not looking for minimalist entrepreneurs. You're looking for people who are going to be unicorns. Am I right that there's like a, a two parts of Sahil, and this is yeah the minimalist part.
1: Yeah, I would say there's three. Honestly, like there's three. There's three paths I think, or three parts to me. One is the sort of startup venture capitalist part. Uh, which I still care about. And even when I published that that sort of reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company, I say at the, the last line or two is, you know, like I, part of me still wishes I was on that path. So I, I, I guess I'm sort of still playing that world. Um, but then, yeah, there's definitely kind of like the minimalist entrepreneur creator. Like, how do I empower more and more people to run small businesses uh, who may not live in the U.S.? They may not have access to venture capital, may not have a degree from a university. Like, how can they use the tools out there? Uh, cause I kind of, des- you know, believe everyone deserves to, to run a business if they, if they want to. Um, and then the third one is just like the not business part of me at all, which is like I spend, you know, several hours a week figure drawing, you know, drawing, going to a drawing studio using pen and paper or pencil, actually most of the time charcoal and newsprint, uh, recycled newspaper and drawing, you know, a, a live model in front of me, you know? Uh, and I, so I think that's also really key, right? Like ultimately even even the most minimalist of businesses is not going to solve all of your problems, right? Like I think ultimately you're going to need friends. You're going to need family. You're going to need relationships. You're going to need to live in a a beautiful place. Like I think all of these things are important. You need to be healthy, sleep well. And I think that's part of like the, the thesis of the minimalist entrepreneur. And you're totally right. Like it's sort of multifaceted. I'm not saying everyone should adopt this completely, but I do think part of the thesis is that this won't solve all your problems. Right. And this is one reason you might want to consider minimalizing your business is that, If you expect it to solve all your problems, you're going to make it dominate everything. And then when it doesn't go the way you want, you're going to get sad. But if you say, hey, the business is like, I I consider my life a sort of a three-legged stool. If one of those legs, you know, I can can still kind of operate, right? And so it gives me almost like a diversified portfolio of happiness in a way, um, (laughs) Uh which I think is important in this market.
0: (laughs) So how much money do you think you need before you feel financially free? You personally, Sahil?
1: I mean, I've been financially free since I published that blog post in February of 2019 when I was making, I think I was paying myself at that point, $120,000 a year. Um, okay. And that's really all I need. I don't, you know, until I have kids, which is still probably a few years out, um, that will probably change my calculus quite a bit. Um, but okay. until then, yeah, like $10,000 $10, a month is plenty uh, for me.
0: Are you still Mormon?
1: No, I'm not actually. Um, okay. Yeah yeah my my wife also left left the church.
0: Oh, she did. I'll say yeah, this though, Sahil. Yeah. I love what you wrote in your book about Mormonism that you said that you were sitting in church and you saw this community the 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 uh, Mormons have incredible community. Coming back to your book, you say that it should start with community. Give me an example of someone who started with community, started a business that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can give you examples, sort of like the, the, the archetypal examples in the book. For example, like Brian Mark Taylor is an oil painter that I met in Utah, and he sells a, an easel, uh, a sort of physical product uh, called a Strata easel, um, which I own, um, bought one, um, and you take it plein air painting. So you go on a hike, and you it's kind of the apple of of, of easels, because he, he was going on a plein air trip, and his, his easel broke, which basically means you can't paint, and which kind of sucks if you hike three or four hours to get to some location that you want it. want to paint at and so he built a product you know he built it in wood and then productized it you know turned it into an actual product manufactured in in uh, china i believe and it's doing great and it allows him to paint sort of as much as he wants because he no longer has to make a living from painting which allows you to kind of paint the subject matter you might want to paint versus the subject matter that People buy paintings, you know, of right, and so I think that's that's one example. But on the other end, I would argue that even did,
0: did he have a community?
1: Yeah, he he had an Instagram community. He had like I think at the time like maybe twenty or thirty thousand followers. So basically, and he would go to these plein air competitions and conventions and meetups, and so he had probably a few thousand people just within his kind of one degree away audience um, okay. that were all cu- kind of became customers of his or you know prospective customers of his. Of his.
0: Okay, and you were saying, on the Um, other hand, what?
1: Yeah, and then on the other hand, I mean, I, and and this is why I think some of the lessons and hopefully the minimalist entrepreneur also apply to, like, people who are choosing to chase unicorns, um, though I do think it should be a choice, not something you're kind of forced to do or you feel like it's the only path, um, is, like, Stripe. Stripe basically started by selling their product. I was one of the first users of Stripe pre launch but they started selling their products to Y Combinator companies, right? In that batch of like maybe 20 or 30 companies. And so that's like an incredibly tiny community. Everyone knows each other. You know, you can say something, you can say, Hey, I have a product. Does anyone want to use this? Um, and so I think there are ways to kind of apply some of these lessons. I think the core thing about starting with community is you need people who like you and trust you and you have a relationship with, I think that there's so many founders that I talk to that are like, Hey, I'm building a product for this group of people. Uh, and i'm like you know what are you like how are you going to talk to them and they're like oh, i'm just gonna cold email them I'm like well, that's that's great like that's better than trying to go you know tweet and go viral or something like that but they don't know you who you are you're kind of a used car salesman right like you're just getting a cold email from someone who's selling some product um and i think that's just it's brutally difficult uh, but if you can pick a community that you're already a part of you already have built relationships with i think you're gonna have a much easier time selling your product uh getting them to use it getting them getting honest, actual feedback from them. So you can actually make your product better. And then once you have that, you can, of course, go beyond that. Um, but I think starting is so hard for people. I think that's kind of like the, the word that I kept going back to in the book was start, like, how do I get people to start? Um, and I find that a lot of people don't consider themselves entrepreneurs, they don't consider themselves potential business owners, they may not even think of anyone around them as customers. And so I wanted to find another word that kind of represented that which I felt community addressed really well. Everyone should find that they're in some communities, ideally several, um, you know, either offline or online. um, And there's probably a business somewhere there, right? You have to figure out who you want to serve. That's kind of the the first question you you need to ask when you start a business, like who do you actually want to help? And once you figure that out, then you can figure out, okay, well, what's the, you know, what's the problem that they have? And then from the problem, you can build the product. And then from the product, finally, you can assemble the business right around the product. Um, but I think a lot of people, when they say, I want to start a business, like they're thinking about step four, which is very, you know, they, and they don't know how to get there because it's like, you know, step four is pretty high up there, you know, for, for, for many people, they, a business, what is a business? What does that mean? How,
0: how do you, that, you find know, it? I, I think, once you have a community, how do you find people's problems?
1: Um, I think, I, I mean, I think a f- great first step is to ask, um, you know, just but honestly, I think the best way is to observe, just pay attention, just get really good at paying attention to the problems that people have, um, that I call them toe stubs in the book, but basically things where you feel like it's going to be easy. You're like, oh, of course, I'm going to be able to do that. And then you try and you fail. And you're like, this is weird. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of people, their tendency is to kind of explain it away, right? It's to say, hey, the reason this is hard is because, you know, or this is painful or slow or, you know, or yeah. what have you, high friction. Is because of this reason or that reason or, you know, supply chain issues or whatever. And I think it takes sort of like an entrepreneurial mindset to say, maybe it shouldn't be anymore. Like, maybe there's new technology today that we could use, apply to this problem. Um, You know, maybe I have the skills to solve this problem instead of saying, oh, someone else will solve it later. Um, But that takes like a certain level of confidence. That takes a certain level of awareness, um, you know, to kind of say, okay, no, I'm going to be the one to solve this problem uh, for my community.
0: Yeah, you know what? to explain it away such a good understanding what's going on i even remember before you started gumroad when i tried to use paypal to sell digital products paypal had buttons they had ways to do it whenever it wasn't working i thought i must not be going to the right section on paypal i'm too i'm too embarrassed to admit to everyone that i don't know where this is and that i'm having a hard time creating this link and that it's not exactly working for me And I think my my customers were doing the same thing, saying, it's not working for me, but I must have hit the wrong thing, or I must have a unique (laughs) situation here. Um, But by the way, speaking of uh, audience, one of the things that really stuck with me in your book was uh, Nathan Barry talking about how he was looking at someone else, another designer named Chris, I'd say almost with envy, watching how they were doing the same thing, but Chris was taking off. And then, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, totally. You want to tell that story? Cause I was about to launch into it, but yeah, I'd love to hear from you <laughs> instead.
1: I'll tell the story. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Nathan Barry was kind of at that point now he's CEO of ConvertKit, 20 million ARR, but before, you know, he was like kind of a, a freelance web designer and there was another guy, Chris Coyier who, who ran a, a blog called CSS tricks and he did this Kickstarter campaign. Uh, and at the time, you know, Nathan and Chris were kind of both kind of like at the same level in the community. And, um, and then Chris did this Kickstarter campaign and raised like a, a bunch of money, uh, way more than expected, like tens of thousands of dollars. And 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 Nathan was kind of pondering like, why? Like, I, I feel like we're just as good. We kind of do the same thing. We have the same sort of audience, you know, uh, community. Uh, like, what what's what's he doing that I'm not? Like, there must be some reason for it. And he, you know, he, he basically realized like, basically, and, and this is kind of a key lesson is that Nathan would would do the client work or do the project, and then he would move on right? And Chris had a very different process, which is he would do the work, but then he would document, as he was doing the work, he would document all the stuff that he was learning, uh, all the things, all the hacks that he had to figure out, like basically he would write a tutorial every single time he did a project. Uh, And so he basically got two outputs out of everything that he did, right? One, or really three, he had the product that he was already doing, that Nathan was doing, but then two, he had actually like the what Jack uh, Butcher calls the sawdust, right? Like the all the extra stuff that you create as part of that, you can kind of package that up and and, and use that to build your audience. And so he would actually put this out there and which would build a ton of trust with his audience. And I think that's like the third asset is he was, he was really building, the most important thing he was building was actual trust. He was creating value. He was helping people over and over and over again. He was teaching as he learned. And when he had a Kickstarter project uh, that he wanted help, with you know that that audience would probably spend at that point years and years getting value and, and and value from chris but not necessarily nathan um he was he was able to to do that incredibly you know financially successful. when i, I kind of think about i mean even with the book i think of a, a lot of purchases as like thank yous almost versus like oh i need this book because it's going to solve a problem for me because frankly a lot of, you yeah. just don't know like you don't you might not know what's in the book especially if it's a pre-order for a book right but I find that the, a lot of the people who support you are, the, and this kind of goes back to the starting with community, I think it's why it's so key, uh, is because these people are not buying it because they think you're necessarily solving a problem for them. They're buying it almost as a, as a token of gratitude. Like you've already provided, let's say the book costs 20 bucks, you've already provided $20 of value to me in the last like year, two right. years, 10 years. So, you know, I'm going to do this to support you, right? Gary Vaynerchuk calls this kind of give, 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 ask.
0: I always have a problem with that, but it's true that it happens. It feels like it just doesn't seem to be a capitalistic, rational decision for people to make, to buy a stranger's book as a way of saying thank you. But um, but I acknowledge that I do that, and I know other people do that. Um, all right, let me take a moment to talk about my first sponsor. It's HostGator for hosting websites. Sahil, let me ask you this. You're a creator. You talk in your book about all the things that you've created over the years, and I, I think you have a phrase like creation begets creation," which I've definitely seen with you if uh if if you were starting your career and Andrew Warner comes to you and says i'm going to give you a hostgator account it doesn't cost much anyway i'm just going to hand it to you what would you create on a website today to get yourself started let's use that as the
1: ad for hostgator yeah no that's great i would i would i would create a personal website right um I would start it with my name at the top and then I would have a blog and I would have a portfolio. I think those are kind of like the two essential things that every, and maybe an about page or something like that. But frankly, I think the most important thing, like I think better than an about page is just like a series of thoughts that you've had. And so write a, start writing a blog, uh, use WordPress or or what have you. Uh, and then, Mm -hmm. which is basically what I did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and, and then start building a portfolio, a portfolio of, of real work of real things that you've shipped, uh. And it doesn't have to be things that you've designed or built, but like some common, you know, maybe it's some no code app or something like that. But I think it's important to start thinking about it. Like you, 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 you want a paper trail, right? Like yeah. Whenever you meet someone new, you you want to give them something where they're like, oh, this is interesting. So had like a funny tweet, right? That should not be the end of their relationship with me. They should say, oh, that's interesting click on my avatar, go to my website, go to my blog, read Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion-Dollar Company, get to the bottom, subscribe to my email list, get an email three months later about my book. Like, I think that's the sort of customer journey, if you if you want to call it that. But it all starts with sort of creating a, a trail of breadcrumbs, effectively, right? Um, to allow people to kind of like learn more about you without you having to do anything. And you're going to suck in the beginning, you know, like your first few blog posts are probably not going to be that interesting you're going to kind of say the same thing that's been said a bunch of times. Um, But, you know, the only way out is through, right? Like you kind of have to get those things out of your system before you can kind of move on to the more interesting topics, I think.
0: You know what? There's an artist who took Hebrew letters and Arabic letters, and it turns out you can really decipher a Hebrew letter from the bottom of the letter. You don't need the top, and you could decipher an Arabic letter if you just see the top, not the bottom. She goes, letters are kind of similar sounds. I'm going to combine them, and I'm going to make this one font that, basically has both together that both could read even if they can't read each other. I'm seeing your eyes just light up from that, right? That's Um, awesome. (laughs) You would not think that this would work, but it works. It's amazing. And because she had this... It was just a project, but because she had this website up where she just published all the different things that she's been thinking about or creating over the years. Now, when the independent in the UK and other places, uh, publish articles about her, they link to that and you get to see, she's got this body of creative work that she must've just put on there. And I imagine she thought no one's going to pay attention to it. Why am I even publishing it? But you know, she wasn't doing a lot of writing, but she was saying, here's my latest project. Here's another project I've created. Um, her name is Lior Lavi, uh, and I think her last name is Turkenic. But anyway, Lior Lavi is up online right now, and you can see all the different things that she's done over the years. And uh, I see that her site's getting a ton of hits now. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is I like what your idea is, Sahil. I always think uh, what's the be- best business you could create on a skater account, but I think just having a portfolio where people can see what you've done over the years, even if they're not following along throughout the time that you're publishing, They have something to come back, like you said, breadcrumbs, and I highly recommend that people do that on HostGator because HostGator is inexpensive, they host well, and they just freaking work. If you go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy, you'll get the lowest possible price, HostGator.com slash Mixergy. All right, so you talk about community. The second thing you talk about is they don't even, minimalist entrepreneurs don't even build. And dude, there are times, Sahil, where I would look at some of the people who sold on Gumroad and think, what the hell, dude? You're not really creating anything. All you're doing is taking an air table and you're filling <laughs> it in with some data and then you're selling that. It almost feels like it doesn't seem worthy of selling. I'll give you uh, examples. You know what's one is contact information for bloggers, contact information for podcasters. It's just they put it in an air table and they let anyone else add to it and then they sell it on Gumroad. And you think that this is a good approach because...
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's because business is a muscle and muscles require muscle memory and muscle memory requires experience. And there's no way around that. And I think so many people get stuck. You know, if you do get to a, a place where you are like starting with community, and you are adding value. I think you still have to, there's other business muscles that you have to develop like pricing, like sales, like marketing. Um, and yeah, I think the point is just, just try something. Right. And it, maybe you don't even have an air table. Maybe it's like, Thirty minutes and i'll get on a phone call with you you know it's like 30 bucks and i'll get on a 30 minute phone call with you and i'll just talk through your problems right um you can start with the most manual of process uh and then over time you can sort of automate more and more and more of it right and and this is like i think something that a lot of people miss when they look at startups or, or websites or products um apps and, and and these these things like they they think that they, they were like this amazing and sexy and automated from the beginning right and, and actually like a lot of these businesses Start out very, very manual. There's like maybe someone in the back that you don't even know exists doing a lot of the manual work, you know. Uh, and then over, I mean, Stripe, for example, I bet you that a lot of their underwriting in the early days of their first merchants was manual, you know. Uh, and then over time, once you have the data, once you have like the sort of the the, the inertia, um, then you can start to kind of automate automate things away. Um, and and so I think that's just like a, a hurdle that a lot of people never never cross because they think they like their first product has to be a product. It has to be uh, an app that is totally self-serve, you can sign up, you can pay, you can use it, you know, without talking to a human being. Um, but that's just not true. I think a ridiculous amount of businesses, even the, even like the crazy large ones are still very manual. There's still a lot of process, um, you know, and, and so I think it's okay to, to kind of embrace that. Um, and I also love the idea that people are starting with something incredibly tiny, um, as long as they're honest about what they're selling in the beginning, and they are, you know, a lot of the, it's not hard. Like, for example, even with my book, I was going to make a joke tweet um, that said, look, if you don't want to read the book, um, here's the glossary. Here's like the index of every single term mentioned in the book. And you can literally just Google each word, each person, each phrase, um, and compile your own book, right? Um, it's like 300 or 400 search terms. It's going to take you days and days and days to do, um, but you can do it. Um and I think that's part of the point here is like, look, if you're able to save people money and save people time uh, or make people money, those are kind of the, the three things that I like to focus on, then it doesn't matter the form that takes, right? It could be a phone call. It could be an air table. It could be an app. Um, it, it, there's a, it could be a book. It could be a, co- a cohort-based course. It could be like, there's yeah. so many different ways. And I, I, I see this with creators all the time where they're like, is really, people would pay for this? Um, and it's like, well, you would. Right, you compiled all this data for some reason, probably for yourself. Right, you probably spent hours and hours right. doing this, and so like you would have paid for this if it already existed. And so, yeah, I think the evidence is is the fact that you even assembled this product in the first place. <laughs>
0: uh, you gave an example about John Eramic in the book, who I guess he was what he was a he worked in the film industry. Oh, he ran a post-production company, and he noticed that a lot of people had trouble getting the closing credits into movies, which kind of makes sense. It is a pain to remember all the people who are on it and then all the different cities you mentioned and the music and so on. I didn't realize that they had that much trouble with it. He said he was going to create a company that would solve it, and then he and his co-founder basically did the whole thing in Google Spreadsheets and then just kept adding and adding to it, but they were... Taking on all the work for their clients, even if they were using spreadsheets, it didn't matter. And then they built it. How big did that business get? Do you know,
1: um, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's they. They did raise a tiny amount of money from from the Com Company Fund. Um, so I think they're they're doing quite well. Um, obviously, COVID was was a tough year for a lot of people in the film industry, but I think they've they've come out of it pretty pretty darn strong. And that's a great example. Yeah, like for example, like end credits. Like let's say you add someone or remove someone, like you have to reformat. The entire list, you know? Uh, Um, And and so, yeah, they just built this thing and and they're like, oh, just, we'll just add it in Google Sheets and then we'll write a little Perl script that basically takes the Google Sheet data and then turns it into, you know, you can just hit a button every time you need to generate like the the new list of people. Now I think it's a lot more automated than that. Gumroad is another example. Like a lot of people are like, how did you build Gumroad in a weekend? You build like an entire marketplace of buyers and sellers. But the truth is like I was a single seller. I was selling on behalf of all the merchants on Gumroad. And then every month, I would go into PayPal and I would make a list of all the people I owed and then I would pay them all. And then I would literally go into the database and like change the balance to zero, Um, which, you know, worked for months and months and months, maybe even a couple of years. Like, I don't know. It would, it it worked for a very long period of time. I think this is the other thing that I learned when I first started working at a startup. I, you know, I, I I got a job at Pinterest and I had this, uh, I don't know, like this vision of startups. as like this crazy thing, supercomputers on the wall, floor to ceiling, like, everyone wired in or you know like whatever hackers like whatever kind of the movies portrayed uh portrayed startups as uh, and and then i got there and i was like wow there's like just a bunch of duct tape like anyone can do this and, and i think that's really empowering right it's like oh wow like i have it's both empowering and then also like oh uh oh like i have no excuses anymore because it turns out all i need is a laptop an internet connection and a phone and i have all those things uh and so yeah like what am i waiting for right um and i think that's kind of another important thing here. Uh, to get is also just like there's a lot of duct tape out there. Like you think Stripe is the most perfect company with the most beautiful UI, I guarantee you that there's a ton of duct tape all over the place within that company because they have to work with banks, they have to work with all sorts of cra- I mean, you know, I, you don't want to know like the about Sabre, you know, every time you book a flight, like the database that 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 every flight uh, runs on is like some database in like Texas, you know, uh you know, written in like the 60s and 70s that's still maintained. You know, it's just like in, it's crazy. Um The world works though, right? And I think that's kind of the important lesson here is that the user experience is doing is solving the problem, then it doesn't necessarily matter, right? If you produce Shakespeare, it doesn't matter if it was like a bunch of monkeys on typewriters for billions of years, right? You produce Shakespeare. Um, I just think that's kind of an important thing to get is that look, like a lot of people, they just get in their head about it. They're like, no, this needs to be the perfect thing. You know, it's like, I remember reading a book as a kid and the first book I read with a typo in it, and I was like, what? Like, this is allowed? Like, you don't go to jail? Like you know, like kid, <laughs> teachers would tell you, like you can't have typos; that's wrong. And then you read a published right. book by some author, and you're like, "Wait, but there's typos in here? How is that possible?" Um, and that was that was pretty eye opening. It's kind of the Steve Jobs quote, right?
0: What was the Steve Jobs quote? And then we'll go into the next point. The
1: Steve, yeah, the Steve Jobs quote is basically, you know, like basically you realize that the world is was built by people no no smarter than you are. And once you realize that, you realize you can reconstruct the world the way that you want um, if you have the, you know the discipline, the time, the energy, and a bit of luck.
0: All right. Next point is you say minimalist entrepreneurs should sell to their first 100 clients. And here's the thing that that blew me away in the book. You said Slack, when they IPO'd at $16 billion valuation, 575 575 of their customers accounted for about 40% of their revenue. So you don't need as many customers as you think you need. That's a really exciting realization, right?
1: Yeah. This is another thing that kind of blew me away about a lot of these startups is you think that you need, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions maybe of customers, uh, you know, because I think maybe the startups, you know, it's like Netflix with their subscriber count or Facebook with their daily active users or Twitter. You just kind of assume that you need like just an insane amount of people. And the only way to get those people is by basically, you know, having some crazy scalable growth marketing channel or engine or SEO or 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 what have you, or you need some celebrity influencers to kind of sell your product for you, um, which you which you do if, if you're if you're like selling deodorant or something like that, right? But most of the businesses are not trying to do that. Though there's one example of that. But uh, really, the goal is to sell to yeah to figure out how many do you actually need. If you say okay, I want to get to let's say you know use my number one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, and you kind of work backwards from there and say okay the, the you know it's like it's like a hundred bucks a month. Okay, well that's twelve hundred a year. Well, you only need a hundred people. And then you're, you're, you're good. You know, you have a hundred customers to in a year, there's 261, I believe, business days a year, something like that. So that's like, that's like doing a, you know, signing up a new customer, you know, every three days. Right. Uh, And, and, and obviously it's going to take longer than that. You're going to have churn, like it's not going to be as smooth or simple, but I think it makes it much more reasonable. You know, I can tell my mom, like, yeah, if you spend eight hours a day today, do you think you could acquire one customer for your product? Um, the answer is probably yes, you know, uh, uh, or if you fail, you'll have data to make your product better, right? I think every every sales conversation either is useful, right? You either acquire a customer or you acquire a reason that that customer was not acquired and you can kind of either say, okay, that's not the right customer for me. And you can kind of recalibrate on on your kind of ideal sort of customer profile. Or you could say, I want that customer. They need this thing. I'm going to go build it, or I'm going to go solve that problem, or I'm going to. They need this level of trust, so I'm going to have to figure that out.
0: You wrote in the book about how, um, actually, you, you basically gave the email that you sent out to people when you were trying to get them to use Gumroad. It was something like, "I see you're selling a PDF using PayPal. Do you know that Gumroad can make it easier, etc." What did you learn by talking to customers one at a time like that? What helped you shape? What helped shape how Gumroad became.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the most important thing is you figure out the, as Clayton Christensen calls it, the job to be done, right? I think everyone, when they have a business, they believe that they know the problem that they're solving for their customer. Uh, for example, for Gumroad, it was like, oh, I need to help all of these people. In the beginning, I want to help all of these people like become, you know, sell directly, selling these atomic things, get rid of their storefront, sell all these products directly on social media. Like I really felt like that was kind of the future of commerce. Um, which frankly did not play out the way that I thought it was going to play out over the last 10 years. Um, and then I realized talking to customers, that like they didn't care about any of that stuff. They just wanted, they were spending, you know, let's say 10 minutes a day, like copy pasting a link from Dropbox into the email because they wanted to email everybody who'd bought their thing, or they were dealing with a bunch of customer support because they took too long to do it, or uh, or they would send a file and, and you know, it was like a zip file and they were on their phone and they couldn't read it. And, like, literally customer support was like one of the major problems here. Um, and if you told me when I built Gumroad that like the problem I was really solving for people was cu- customer support issue, I would have said what? Like Gumroad doesn't do any customer support. It's like a it makes it saves you time. It like automates things. Um, and so I think that's the big thing. The big lesson for me it was like what problem are you actually solving? And 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 uh, I use the example of like milkshakes. Uh, you know, and 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 this the problem that milkshakes for for McDonald's solves uh, for McDonald's customers solves is that people want basically want companion wants something to do on like the 30 minute drive to work in the morning they sell most of their milkshakes or 40 percent of their milkshakes like pre 8 a.m which i was like an insane like imagine realizing that like we have milkshakes we have like eight eight in the morning like what like clearly there's a miscalibration of like why we built this why we produce this product and why people actually want it um but I think an, an important lesson in the book, uh, and it was really internalized for me even, was like, look, the reason you built this business is to serve customers. It's not to kind of live up to maybe the vision that you had, right? Ultimately, it's about finding that community, serving them. And if they want you to do something else, you might want to consider doing that, right? If you are if you really want to truly help them, um, you will change, you know, you will pivot, you will kind of change the way that you think about it. Because ultimately, the kind of highest order goal here is to is to help this group of people.
0: All right. So we said, start with community, build as little as possible, sell to your first hundred customers, and then market by being you is the next point. You know what? Let me take a moment, talk about my second sponsor, and then we'll come back into that. My second sponsor is Blue. Sahil, I bet you never heard of them. Am I right? You are Did you correct. hear about them? See, look, no, and you're deep in the space. Here's the thing that Blue does. They say, look, we are going to do email marketing with all the marketing automation tools that you need. So for example, Sahil, if somebody buys from Gumroad, you could just tag them as having bought and not send them more messages to try to sell them, right? This is the type of thing that a lot of email software doesn't offer because it seems too complicated to tag or they do and they make it too complicated to use. Sendinblue has it and more and they make it super easy. So why would you use Sendinblue when you hadn't heard about them? First of all, they're a huge company. I interviewed the founder. Actually, I interviewed a company that sold to, the, to them. Um, so they're a big company. They they're also a company that understands the way that other email marketing companies work, which is they get you in cheap or free. Once your email list grows and it's hard to move the tagging and it's hard to move the email addresses away and it's hard to move the permission, they lock you in and then they ratchet up the price until it's unbearably expensive. And Send and Blue says, you know what? For most people, they're going to be okay with it because they don't even think that far ahead. But there's some businesses, there's some people who think that far ahead because they have clients that they're servicing. And so they see clients build up to this big level or because they build. Built businesses before and they see that, yeah, you'd spend a long time on the free plan, then boom, suddenly you get hit and it becomes real money. And so they said, we're gonna just service those customers, give them all the marketing automation tools they need at a price that's reasonable at first and incredibly reasonable and fair later on, especially compared to competition. If anyone wants to try them out for free right now, if you want to just play around with them, you can go to sendinblue.com slash mixergy. They'll let you use it for free. They'll give you a discount on the price. And frankly, you don't even need a discount because the price is already low. So you're not doing it for the discount. You're doing it to say, thank you, Andrew, for introducing me to send in blue. I'm going to use your URL so they give you credit for signing me up. Here's the URL. It's sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. Go, go check them out. I think you'll be happy with them. All right. So market by being you. Talk a little bit about how you've done that.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, ultimately you want to find a business that you don't have to sort of spend a ton of your time marketing. I think marketing is just one of those things that like, maybe it's just me, but I just don't really enjoy doing it. And then it's kind of ironic because some people would say like, that's the one thing that you do best out of everything else. And so I was trying to figure out like, why is that? Like, what, 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 what am I missing here? And I realized that like, I found a business and this is not just Gumra, but now it's like my venture stuff. It's the book stuff as well. Um, but I find, I try to find things where I can inherently just talk about them. Right. I can go on Clubhouse and I can someone can ask me a question and I can just rant for a few minutes and I can basically talk about the three things that I'm, I'm I'm, building without having to explicitly think about, oh, I have to talk about Gumroad. Oh, I have to talk about my venture stuff. Oh, I have to talk about angel investing. Oh, I have to talk about my book. Oh, I have to talk about this, that, whatever, Um, because, yeah, I, I want to be doing it all the time and I don't want to be spending any extra energy doing it. Right. And so I think it's really important. To figure out like what's your angle like how do how what do you care about that you're already interested in you might already be sharing it to some group of people and how do you apply that to your business right a a real an example that i use in the book is 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 uh like fitness and weight loss which is a big category on Gumroad, and it's a it's it's a a lot how you know examine.com kind of started this way as well um but if you're if you're on a weight loss journey if you're trying to build muscle if you're trying to do all the things that you may want to be doing it turns out a lot of other people are trying to do those same things. Right. And so if you can talk about those sorts of things, not just, Hey, I built a product, I sold, a, I, I have this product you can purchase, or I have this business that you can buy a product from. Um, but actually the journey of getting there, the actual day-to-day learning, um, that you're, that you're experiencing and, and the, and the tough stuff, right? Like this, the, the failures and struggles, like the, the best marketing I ever did for Gumroad was basically telling the world that it, it failed, which, you know, I did not expect to be the best marketing ever for the company, um, but it turned out to be. Um, and so I really have tried to internalize that. What, what can I share authentically about myself that I already do? Um, and how can I apply that to, to sort of growing, growing the business? Um, and sometimes people Doesn't might it? get to that step and say, hmm, I'm not, I'm not doing it the right way, but I found so many businesses kind of post product market fit, have customers are scaling. And this is maybe the chapter that I think applies most to, to venture sort of unicorn chasing startups, uh-huh. because I think marketing is a broad principle. Um, and I found a lot of, a lot of really positive feedback from people who are like bought the book, skip to skip to the marketing chapter. Cause they're like, I'm, this is where I'm at. I already have a hundred customers. Like I already have a business, it's already profitable. Um, but they find a lot of value in that. Cause they're like, oh, wow, this is how I talk about my business in a way that is appealing to people. I entertain people. I make jokes. Um, I educate people on what I mean, I've just
0: learned be your be yourself talk a lot it's I get it I wonder though if it becomes if it becomes painful for you Sahil I looked at you when I asked you if you're still Mormon and it was like god damn Andrew it's like mm-hmm. I'm exhausted already from talking about this book and you gotta pry into my religious life and my you know my family's <laughs> religious life look you just looked over to the side like this is an awkward question to ask <laughs> doesn't it become exhausting to have everyone be so deep in your life
1: um, to a degree. Yes. Yeah. To be honest, no. it is, you know, it's, it's not easy. I think that's kind of a, you know, some people think that like, you know, maybe for some people like Kim Kardashian or something, they can wake up but I, I get, I bet you, even for those folks, they get tired, they get exhausted. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you have to manage it. Um, and of course, like you shouldn't share anything you feel uncomfortable in sharing, but I do think like there is a degree of uncomfortableness and and truthfully like that's why people follow you is because they know that you're doing something difficult yeah. they know you're doing something uncomfortable it's not hard in the sense yeah. that like oh like no one can do that thing right in terms of a skill or or what have you it's like wow you're doing that thing and you're willing to talk about it in a way that is risky you know you're talking about your failure like that's what's difficult. That's the hard part. And everyone knows that everyone knows that being vulnerable, vulnerable is much harder than than actually doing the skill, right? Like sharing my figure drawings on Instagram is a great way for me to be accountable to getting better. But it's tough. I look back at those old drawings. And I was like, wow, that was terrible. But guess what, like no one really cares. Like everyone is kind of self obsessed. Everyone's insecure about something.
0: But I care. Like sometimes I'll have somebody go. Sometimes I'll have people bring up things that are deep in my life. And I think, Oh man, I talked about the fight I had with Olivia because at the time I thought it made sense. But now, now it's an invitation for everyone to talk about my fight with Olivia from five years ago. That's just uh, invasive. I'm listening now to this guy. I, I've become obsessed with chess. I'm watching this guy, Levy Rosen, I think his name is. He goes by Gotham Chess on YouTube. People for a while, they were saying, you're not even a grandmaster. And he'd say, I don't need to be a grandmaster. I'm teaching you chess and I'm going over games. It's fun. That's it. At some point a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, he decided he was going to try to be a grandmaster, and he's losing to 11-year-olds. Dude, they're 11-year-old grandmasters. you know that? <laughs> I did not the know The world that. is watching him. That sucks. It's that like you hilarious. could see he did this video yesterday <laughs> where he's goes, I have to tell you what's going on. And it's really difficult because now everyone's watching me as I do this. And at the same time, I have to do my regular video uploads or else no one's going to follow. And I have to create the stupid thumbnail. He doesn't call them stupid. The thumbnails that look. At, <laughs> and, uh, and meanwhile, it's the videos that are getting the most views. So I guess what you're saying is, look, suck it up, buttercup. That's what it's about right now. If you want people to care about you, you've got to give them something to care about. And they're not going to care about your PR version of yourself. They're going to care about the, the vulnerable. The part where you admitted that you didn't do what you wanted to do is what drew everyone to you.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, if you think about even the, you know, the crazy success stories, right? Like what do you really gravitate towards? Like obviously Steve Jobs, like, you know, he got kicked out of Apple. I mean, that's insane. Right. Elon Musk. I mean, he has so many stories of failure. Um, really every, almost every, every, every person that you, that you respect and hold up. The reason you respect them and hold them up is not because they had an easy life and they were incredibly successful from day one. Like you actually don't respect those people, right? Um, you, generally, the people that I think you admire are the ones who faced adversity, overcame it, uh, and are still, you know, still still going. And I think, at least for me, that's that's like, you know, it's even Kim Kardashian, which I think a lot of people make fun of her because she's not really creating any value. I kind of disagree with that. I think she's a g- phenomenal entrepreneur, but she had like a sex tape leaked in front. Of, I mean, like that's insane, right? If you think about it, like, could, like I don't know what what I would do if that happened to me, right? Um, and so, and, and by the way, people probably, you know, it's, it's not even a thing anymore. Who cares? Right. Like, it, it, and so I think that's the other important thing is like, once you experience it, you think the world, like, I remember when TechCrunch wrote about the gumroad layoffs and I was like, I'm done. Like, I can't recover from like, a, you know, the the paper of record in the industry calling me, you know, sort of it showing yeah. the world that I was a failure. And that was brutal. I was very, very, very difficult. Um, and I didn't tell anyone, like, I kind of hoped that no one had read it. Obviously everyone had read it. Um, and, and, and so it was just kind of this awkward thing where no one wanted to bring it up. It's kind of like, you know, if like, you know, family member passes away or something like that. You're like, do I say anything? I don't know. Um, uh, but yeah, three months later, I'm like, well, I'm still alive. It turns out no one really, you know, everyone's focused on their thing, whatever that thing may be. And then once you get through that, it's, it's so freeing. It's so freeing. Like even, you know, today if Gumroad somehow imploded and died, I would be 100% content with that. I would be. 100% 100% fine. I don't think it'll happen, but it, I think it's certainly a possibility, and that would be fine with it because when I, you know, when I went through the ups and downs, and when Gumroad kind of made it to the other side, I felt like I've, I'm just playing with house money at this point. Like I wrote it off. <laughs> I have no, you know, I, I like, I, I wrote it. I was a zero to me, and so now that it's doing really well, you know, we raised money recently at a hundred million dollar valuation. Like it, it is doing quite well publicly. It doesn't matter. Right, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Um, and and I think that's a really healthy state of mind because then I can just focus on what I do think really matters, which is can we build an amazing team, can we kind of innovate on the way that we work, can we build an amazing product, and none of those things, by the way, might have any impact on the growth of the company. Let's talk about. So you're talking about,
0: you're saying once you're ready to grow, grow mindfully, grow the business and yourself mindfully. How are you growing Gumroad mindfully? How are you growing yourself mindfully?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. That, that honestly was, I think, the hardest chapter to write because um, I think it's incredibly important, but it's also like pretty abstract in terms of like all the other chapters are very, I think, actionable. Hopefully, um, but this one is like, what what does growth mean? What does sustainably mean? And I think part of it is you just have to figure out what do you really want. Like, do you want to chase a unicorn? Do you want to raise a bunch of money and go that direction? Um, do you want to raise money from your community? Do you want to bootstrap the whole way? Do you want to have co-founders? Do you want to do it yourself? Uh, Do you want to hand off the keys to somebody else? Um, And there's sort of two framings that I use in the chapter. Um, But one is basically managing your energy, right? I think being able to be in a place where you can do this thing as long as you want. Uh, And I think that's really important for me. I don't want to run a company where I'm like, okay, I got two more years of this in me, right? No, I'm 10 years into Gumroad, 11 years into Gumroad, something like that. And I want to have 10 more years, 11 more years. And by the time I get close to that, I I want to continue to make it interesting for me. Um, And I think that is really, really, really important. Um, And then the other one is money, right? Managing your money, making sure you don't run out of money, just like you don't want to run out of energy. And that's pretty simple, which is you want to have like an incredibly lean, mean machine. When you do spend money, you want to be spending money on R&D, on things that you don't need to. So if anything kind of goes off, you can kind of revert to the mean and and be profitable again, which I was able to do with Gumroad and frankly save the company in 2015. Um, And you just want to pay attention to that thing. You know, a lot of people don't understand like basic sort of, What is a fixed cost? What is a variable cost? What is COGS? What is, you know, uh, where does AWS fit into this sort of picture? Where do employees fit? What is capital expenditure? Like really basic, simple stuff. I remember I took like a, you know, business class in high school or something like that. And the first thing they teach you is the most important equation in business, which is profit equals revenue minus costs, right? That is, and as long as profit is greater than zero, you're going to live forever, right? Paul Graham calls this default alive. You can basically do this thing forever. Otherwise you're default dead, which is eventually you're, you're going to, if nothing changes, you're going to run out of money. And there was some stat where I think when you wrote the piece, like 42 or something percent of founders, like didn't even know which one they were, which is kind of crazy. It's like, you continue driving this car. You're either going to go off a plane, you know, off a cliff, or you're going to end up in New York city, but you don't actually know. And it's like, well, you should probably figure that out. Um, and so it's just being mindful, just just thinking through what do you want. Does is this business in this current form going to get you there? If not, why not? What changes can you make to be more profitable sooner? Um, and and can you have visibility on that? Right. One lesson for, that I really loved was like how where where do relationships start to break down? And this was kind of a weird thing to put in a business book. Um, but in th- sort of therapy, there's the Gottmans who are very famous for this this concept of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Like basically the four things that end relationships, which I think is like stonewalling, defensiveness, contempt, uh, and one, one other thing. But for me, contempt is like the big one that I really pay attention to. Right? Everyone probably has different things that kind of that they that they sort of trend high on, but for me, it's always like I want to make sure that I respect everybody I work with. Um, and, and Gummer got to a place where I was like, I don't really respect some of these people because we're look, we our goals are now different, right? It's not that they're better or worse than I am. I might be the worst, per- you know, like, what do you I mean? What were their goals like, and what are your goals? Yeah, but well, their, their, yeah, goals what the different like, goals? Oh, Yeah, for sure. Like, for example, like, let's say you own a, you know, 1% of the company as an employee of the company, you want, you mm-hmm. need Gummer to be a multi-billion dollar company. And I don't, yeah. and that is like a very hard conversation to have with someone like, Hey, because by the way, I sold them on that multi-billion dollar pitch, right? Yeah. I was the one who convinced them that, that this was a possibility and I believed it at the time. Uh, and, and I had to say, look, you know, like Gumroad's not headed in this direction. It's maybe it's, I'm not saying it's never going to happen, but it's unlikely. I don't know what could change. Obviously you can't predict COVID. You can't predict a lot of these events um, that have happened. Uh, and so look, if you care about owning a bunch of equity in a fast growing startup, you care about a ton of career growth really quick. Um, you want to see a company grow around you really fast. Um, then, you know, frankly, Gumroad is probably not the place for you. And I think that's, that was a, that was a hard conversation. I had to have a lot of those.
0: One of our mutual friends basically got upset with you because they felt that you did that to someone who worked for you as a way of clawing back equity so that you could then own that, that piece of the business. True.
1: Um, yeah, I can, give you, I can give you some context on that. Uh, and so, yeah, so basically uh, Nathan Berry uh, had this public tweet thread the day of the public fundraising saying, hey, just so you know, before you invest in Gumroad, which I think is totally fair to do, um, you know, here's some, some, some thing you may not know, which is, you know, effectively, I think he had some other points that I do disagree with more, but I, but like I want to talk about the stuff that I agree with because I think it's important, which is basically he said, you know, the people who built Gumroad have no equity in the company. Right. And so, like, you should be mindful when you invest in this company that, like, I don't know if he was saying maybe the same thing would happen to you or just to just to know that this is like what Sahil has done. Um, and the, tr- the truth is, like, it sucks. Like, yeah, it totally sucks. Like, I, I wrote about this in you know, publicly myself um, in, in that essay reflecting on my failure to build, build a billion dollar company where we, we wrote off the investment. And what happens in startups is you have 90 days to exercise your stock options because there are stock options. There's not stock. Um, and if you don't do that, um, and, and you won't, if, if you really believe the Gumroad is a zero, um, though some people did exercise, so it's not exactly true. There were some people who did have equity in the company. Um, but, but most people did not, right. Because Gumroad had been a zero. It was, it was basically totally written off. Um, and that basically meant that, yeah, everyone, you know, it was kind of like a a sinking ship. Everyone kind of wrote it off, found new jobs, did whatever. Um, and then three or four years had passed, uh, Gumroad you know, which, by the way, was like longer than most of those people had ever worked at the company. Um, and then government started to do much better because mostly because of COVID, which, you know, was, was really pretty, pretty unpredictable. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny because I actually did try and I still am trying, by the way, to, to give equity to these people. I will end up actually gifting my own shares because that seems to be like the, the best way to do it. Um, but I can't do it from the company. For, like my lo- lo- my legal firm is not happy with that. Um, but basically, you cannot just give equity to people out who don't work at the company. so I literally can't go back. I can gift it to them for my own personal stake, which I, which is what I plan to do now. Um, but I tried doing this a couple of times and and Cooley was like, you can't do this. You can't just give equity to people who no longer work at the company. You have, basically have to reemploy them. and I'm like, well, that's not gonna happen. They're all jobs and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> Why can't but you give it that, to them after that. Um, it just, it's just legally not allowed. Like you can't give equity to people, um, sock options to people who are either, they either have to be work, working for the company, uh, advisors to the company, um, or vendors to the company. But basically, they have to be doing some work to get those shares. You can't just, the company cannot just gift shares, which I assume is, you know, to be at fraud or 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 embezzlement or or something like that um but i had these conversations even you know years before that before that whole drama kind of happened um and and i literally told cooley like i'm doing this like i'm going to do this because i think it's important it's not going to be life changing money for anybody but i think it's a good token of thanks and i you know i'm, I'm, I'm sort of grateful even though i may disagree with the way you did it to, to bring it bring it up because i think it is important um uh I will say, you know, like he offered to buy the company for three hundred thousand dollars in twenty sixteen, and he would have owned one hundred percent of the company with his buddies. So I don't think there was any discussion of giving equity to to to, to any of the employees. So so I I think it's a little weird. Uh, but anyway. Um, he, why didn't you sell it? Why didn't I sell it? Um. Yeah, honestly, that's I a pretty just,
0: good amount of money for you.
1: Yeah, I mean. I think I I I was a better shepherd of the business. Um, like I I felt like I don't know I didn't trust them or I didn't feel like they 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 were aligned with with what I with what I felt the business should do. Um, and so yeah, I just felt like I'm going to keep running this thing, um, and we'll see we'll see what happens. Um, and, and it it turned out I mean literally dude, that was 2016, and then COVID was 2020. So four years it took to really kind of for the direction didn't of the do, company to change. It did frankly, better before
0: COVID. I, I interviewed you it be- did a- long before COVID, back in 2020. The company was on a good path. I don't know that it was a hundred million dollar business at the time, but it was clearly on yeah. the path to being that.
1: Yeah, it was probably 20, 30 million, maybe business. Um, but uh, but part of that, I think, and this is this is something that I, I, it's hard to address this uh, in in the sense of like. How much of an impact did this have? But I think a big part of the, that success was writing about the failure, which is kind of ironic. Yes, but I wrote it, yeah. I wrote this piece, and then a million people ended up reading that piece, and Gumroad, all of a sudden, was like a sort of a household name within the tech industry, like almost overnight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was like, you know, and I literally when I when I wrote that piece, I remember it was it was it was uh, Gumroad had grown twenty five percent in twenty. 18. I wrote that I published that piece in in February. And I wrote it because I had written it off. Like I literally wrote it because I was like, yeah, at some point I'll sell this business for a few million bucks or something like that. And then I'll do something else with my life. Um, But I'm in no rush to do that. um, And creators seem to like it. And I've hired people back to run the business and and add features and fix bugs. Mm -hmm. And and no one was really complaining. Um, And then that essay did so well. And then, you know, we went from 25% year over year growth to forty percent year over year growth, and I think that also helped because when COVID happened, Gumroad was now a household name, and so we saw a lot more kind of acceleration of the accelerator. So that started to compound in a in a very significant way, and we grew eighty seven percent last year. Um, you know, so we went from fifteen to twenty five percent to forty percent to eighty seven percent growth. Wow, and which is just crazy
0: let me let me ask one last question about that before moving on to the next part of the book which is what year was it what year was it that nathan made that offer for 300 million dollars for the business
1: It was 300,000 300, dollars
0: oh 300,000 300, oh oh no wonder you 000. didn't sell oh never mind okay i misheard that Yeah, okay. 300,000 what year was it out i think of it curiosity? was 2016
1: i think okay. it was 20 right. i would have to go look i found the deck cuz i was like wait didn't he offer to buy the company <laughs> okay but um, oh, i think it was got it, it. Was a, It was a 2016 or something, something, something like that. Um, So, yeah. And and all those people will have equity in the business. And even though, you know, the vast majority of people who are like, wait, he's, he's basically asking you to give equity to people who like no longer work at the company. And, and I was like, yeah, but you know, he has a friend who, who feels betrayed. Um, You know, it was a hard time. I I will be real about that. I mean, it was hard, like laying off 75% of the company you know we had put a lot of time and energy and you know blood, sweat and tears into this thing and it was not working in the way that we thought and it kind of sucked you know um, and i can totally see that now it's doing well people i think i know the
0: friend that he has and i'm glad that you're not bringing up the person's name i would love to get that friend to do an interview with me here and to talk about one of his past challenges not in an aggressive way but he had this one thing that was that didn't go right that I wish that he would get open about what happened there because I do think he's incredibly analytical. He's incredibly smart and well-respected, and I think he's doing himself a disservice by not talking about what didn't go right there. And then also I think a lot of us are looking on the outside going, what happened there? It's like you've, we've got this hole in our understanding of you. I, I won't say any more than that because I yeah. – I, I promised him that I'd be private, and I promised you I wasn't even going to bring up uh, that it was Nathan Barry here, but I, I I texted you right away. You were open with me right away, and I think you were because you knew that I would keep things private, and so I'm going to keep that going. All right, let's close it out with two things here. Um, you say build a house you want to live in, which is something you've talked about before. You said make something people want also goes to the business that you build. Make something people want to work in, and one of the things you've done in the past to make your company into something you love is go remote and you are ahead of the curve on that. Give me another like Sahilism of what is it that you make Gumroad feel like that is a uniquely Sahil thing that other people would find wacky?
1: Yeah. I mean, one example of that is no meetings, right? We don't do any meetings at the company. It's all kind of asynchronous uh, in that way. Just like basically we do all of our communication over text instead of video or audio. Um, which I think is a really kind of important, uh, way of the, the you know, that the we work. Um, uh, and we kind of need to do that, frankly, cause we have people in 17 different countries now, like it just wouldn't be, if I had to pick a time, I'd alienate some part of the company and a kind of night, like one time zone is like the time zone yeah. for the company. But,
0: but how do you do that? Don't you sometimes have an issue that you need to hash out with people and just bring them all together? Let's talk it through, or even one-on-one let's talk this thing through. Uh,
1: Honestly, it hasn't happened. I think that's partly because we just run this, you know, I think when you're on that unicorn chasing path, and you need to grow super fast, you need these things resolved now, right? When you have time to figure this stuff out, you can write like a nice email, you can edit it down, you can really try to figure out what are you trying to say. um, And then they can do the same thing. And sometimes I find like, in terms of the time, it might take longer to resolve, but maybe in terms of the back and forth and the kind of like the emotional stress and anxiety of these conversations, I find that it's a lot less because both of you are taking time to process, um, process it in a way that, you know, generally if you're in, in an office, you're kind of just going, you know, it's kind of like a fight, right? You ever get into a fight with somebody, um, like Olivia five years ago or whatever, like I, I'll say for <laughs> myself, like sometimes the best thing and something I learned in therapy is to just say, look, I'm in a flooded emotional state. And, and that's just a sort of a physical hardware bottleneck. Like I cannot fix it now. So like I'm gonna go go for a walk for 30 minutes and then I will that's whatever bad juju energy I don't know exactly the physiological stuff that's happening but 30 minutes from now I'm gonna come back and we're gonna both be level headed and we and it's inc- and, and by the way if you you that 30 minutes kicks in when you stop arguing right so it's not like you argue for 30 minutes and 30 minutes in your argument all things get better right you kind of have to say I need to I need to take a break. Um, and so I find that like applying that lesson to, to, to sort of building this business has been like incredibly freeing. I think the other nice thing that writing does is it gives everyone a level playing field, right? There's certain people who are super charismatic. They can talk really well. They're loud, confrontational, they're a type sort of personalities, and there are other people who are shy, introverted, et cetera. And I think it's really important to build a culture that allows both of those people to thrive, um, and both of their ideas to thrive versus, oh, it's the idea from the type a personality that always wins. Right. Um, and I think writing, at least for me, I feel writing is like a, is a much more sort of equal level playing field, uh, especially different cultures, you know, maybe, maybe English is not your first language. I think writing generally can help, help with that as well. All
0: right. Final section of the book is where do we go from here? Or where do you go from here? One of the things that you talk about is hiring as a way of doing it. You've said you've shown how you hired You hire on Twitter, which is pretty, uh, impressive. You also say that you look to hire somebody who will take over your work, but do it better than you can. Tell me more. What else is it that we need to understand about that future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's one thing that business books just don't get into a lot. Um, and I, I wrote, rewrote that chapter a couple times because I, I also was like, what do I want to say at the end? And part of it was like, I don't know what to, you know, like, I don't have all the answers. Like, I don't know, you know, every, you know, I, again, like the business is not going to solve every, you know, sometimes you read a book and you're like, It's like, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like like a nail, right? It's like, oh, you have to apply this concept to every single thing in your life. And that's the answer to everything. Um, And and, and I think for me, it's like, look, your business is not going to solve all the problems. And so you should figure out what problems will be solved by other things. And you need to give yourself time, space, energy to go solve those other problems. And that means hiring people who can do your job for you. Because ultimately, I think the best way to get sort of the fully minimalist approach would be to like have zero time, energy, attention spent on this sort of thing, right? Find a new CEO for the company. I have not done that yet. Um, maybe I need to re, you know, update it, have a revised version in a couple of years or something like that. But you know, eventually you, you want people who can do the job that you were doing better than you can. And because you've built the company in this way, you have writing everywhere, you have documentation, you have a paper trail on all the decisions you made and why you've made them and the ones that turned out to be great, the ones that didn't turn out to be so good. Ideally, it means that other people can do the job for you, right? Unless you really believe that out of the seven billion people on planet Earth, you are the best, most qualified person, which I think statistically is just unlikely. You need to be hiring people who can do all of the various jobs. I actually have a Google sheet or Google Docs that lists all the things that I do manually, and I'm like trying to whittle away at it, right, until there's nothing left, until I can say, "Hey, maybe this should, maybe Gummer should just be a DAO, you know, like maybe I just don't (laughs) need, maybe we don't need a company at all, right?" Like what's still on on that list? It's like, it's like really boring stuff, you know, like stuff like, uh, you know, besides recruiting, which is probably the, the biggest thing that I do, you know, it's like moving money from like strike to Wells Fargo and from Wells Fargo to PayPal, you know, like because just cause you can't automate stuff like that. It's like, you know, making sure that like, you know, I have a check-in call every three months with like our, our lawyer about this, this thing or equity incentive plans or like, it's just really like, it's stuff that I really feel should be automated. It just, we haven't gone to that stage in sort of our society and technology mm-hmm. in like maybe regulatorily. Um, to get to a place where we can kind of automate all this sort of stuff, um, and then yeah, fine. you know ultimately you don't have to automate this stuff. You can just find someone who who wants to do it, right? Who has maybe more energy and wh- has a different approach at at what you're trying to do. And so I, my guess is in the next year or two, I'll probably tweet. I'll say, employee, uh, hiring employee number one, CEO, <laughs> and doing doing an open call for a CEO and 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 for Gumroad and and seeing what happens. I think would be a would you know, be a fun we- a fun experiment.
0: You know who did that incredibly well is Paul Graham. Why Combinator was so Paul Graham that the early people to go into the program came because of his writing. Then it was because of the small team that they had on board, uh, including Jessica Livingston, who basically saw the person behind the the entrepreneur. Anyway, and then he one day just tweeted out, all right, and I'm gone. And here are the people who are taking over. It was shockingly good considering how tidy was the business. All right. And it worked out great for them it worked out really well for them and it sounds like it worked out well for him he's just tweeting about his kids and his ideas and and politics and not a single thing about like what's wrong with hacker news today all right the book is called <laughs> the minimalist entrepreneur it's full of great stories what's one thing that you did to help that worked especially well for selling the book i've been hearing that you've been doing Yeah well, with well it. I-
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's been going well. I think one thing I did was I did a course, a cohort. So I did 136, I think it ended up being uh, people and I gave them all access to the book chapter by chapter, got a ton of feedback on the book, and a ton of advocates, you know, they helped write the book, I acknowledge them all in the kind of at the end of the book. Um, But it made the book one made it a lot stronger two gave me a real community of people that I could use, you know, reviews on Amazon, like these things really add up. Right. And so having Mm -hmm. even just a hundred people, 150 people, people look at maybe like 250,000 Twitter followers. And, but like, look, maybe one day I'll have 250,000 book reviews or readers or whatever, but like ultimately right now I'm trying to build really deep relationships, really make sure that this book is useful to these people. And I think the best way to do that is to go right back to the beginning of the book, which is start with community, find your people, add value and, and build those, build those relationships, plant those seeds. Um, and so i'm really grateful that i did that it also gave me the confidence to know that okay when this book comes out october 26th it's going to be good because at least 100 people read it and didn't think it was terrible
0: <laughs> all right it's the minimalist entrepreneur um congratulations on the book congratulations on all the investing i wish that you would have let people invest more in gumroad i was one of the people who put in only a thousand dollars and i think all right this could be a billion dollar business Just $10,000.
1: Stay tuned. Stay tuned. We're going to hope (laughs) to make that easier for more people to do soon.
0: you mean to invest more?
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. Thanks, Sahil.
0: Congratulations. And thank you to my two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you need email marketing that will grow with your business without growing the expense, uh, go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. Go check them out. If you've never seen them before, at least introduce yourself to them because... There's a reason why they came back. It's working for a lot of our customers. They're sticking around long-term. And so they came back and bought a bunch more ads for me. Sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. And of course, HostGator.com slash Mixergy. thanks.
1: Thank you so much for having me again. Always great to be All here. On.
0: Thanks.